Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. You guys leave us there. Hey, my name is uh, Josh Tandy. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Movement, and uh, glad you're making uh, a point to join us today. It's kind of fun to, to see some folks that are, that are coming back and uh, checking things out. I also know that there's a watch party going on at, uh, at a home, and some new people have been invited into that. So welcome to you all. If this is your first time experiencing something with Movement Church, you're welcome uh, to be here, and we, we are glad that you are here. Uh, we're in this series called uh, This Changes Everything, and, and last week I joked about how that's a, a tagline that can get thrown around, uh, infomercials and the things like that, like that's going to revolutionize things. But uh, today we're talking about this way in which accepting an invitation changes everything. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, for you to be a member of something, you have to opt in right? You have to opt in. You have to pay dues. You have to get the little membership card. You even, you know, you get a subway and you, you get the little card and the hole punches and you eat 10 or eat nine, you eat your 10th one free. All those different ways that you can become a member of something. Or maybe you have to register. You have to register like at a political party or you have to uh, be, a, be, be uh, in good standing. Maybe you're a member of something like your family. You didn't really get a choice to, to pick your family, and at Thanksgiving you reconsider all of that, right? You wonder if you can opt out. Or, or maybe you're a member of something because of your identity or your behavior. For instance, I'm a dad because I have children, right? I'm a dad because uh, I am their dad. But I also uh, have started telling really corny jokes and, and making really ridiculous, stupid comments. I go around, I, I turn lights off and check the thermostat, and, and I tell my kids, like, close the door, you weren't born in a barn, and all these, like, ridiculous things. I'm also, like, I also pick the worst times to try to engage with my kids with logic, right? It'll be in the middle of an argument, it'll be in the middle of them misbehaving, I'm trying to get them to do something, and I'll just just have to tell them, like, hey, you whining really makes your whole argument fall apart. And they're crying. It's a whole thing, right? And I feel really smug, but I'm in the wrong. Like, I, I'm a pair of white New Balances and strapping on and sewing on some pockets on the side of my jeans from becoming that dad, right? Like, I'm that close. Like, I'm a dad, but I'm a dad. Like, I'm a member of that group. Maybe you define membership by something you opt in, your identity, your background, your behavior. But here on Sunday morning, we have to ask that question. What makes you a Christian? What makes you a member of this family of God? Is it someone who holds certain beliefs? Someone who goes to church regularly? Is it someone who gives money, who's generous to the church, to other faith-based charities? Is it someone who knows the Bible really well? Someone who has prayed a certain prayer, who has been baptized? Someone who is going to heaven? So often we identify and define a Christian based on the things that Jesus has taught. Or we, we say, hey, this is what Jesus taught. And we boil that down to saying he teaches about hell avoidance. He teaches about making sure that you can get into heaven when you die. It's an idea that if you believe just the right thing, if you, if you do just the right thing, you jump with the right hoops, you're in. Last week we defined this as in, an, in or out Christianity. And there's a graphic that goes with it. It's a bounded set, right? It's an it's issue of there's a clear line. You're either in or you're out. You're the in and you're out, and that simplifies things. That makes things a little easier for us to understand, but is it really helpful, right? Is it really helpful to be thinking about, hey, here's the clear line. Everyone who joins us is in, but everyone on the outside, man, you're, you're out of luck. Like, you just, I'm sorry. I wish that wasn't the case, but you're out there. Now, the problem with, with that way of thinking or that kind of mode of thinking, this in or out version of Christianity, is that Jesus doesn't talk about being a Christian, about following him in these terms. In, in fact, 
you know what doesn't define the term Christian? The Bible doesn't define the term Christian. Jesus never lays out membership hoops to jump through. He never talks about paying dues. He never talks about church attendance. He never talks about those sorts of things as markers, as kind of identifiers or ways in which we can join something. Jesus, the rest of the New Testament writers, they don't give us a top five list of things to do or to believe. They don't lay out how to become a Christian. He doesn't say, first you say this, first you do this, then this, then this, and this, then boom, you're a Christian. Jesus himself wasn't a Christian. Jesus was Jewish. In the New Testament, the term Christian, which literally in Greek means little Christ, this term Christian is only stated three times. And it's only used when the church becomes so diverse that they can no longer be associated with just one group of people or people from a certain region. They couldn't be classified by ethnicity, so the church adopted a new term. The truth, the truth is that Jesus invites us to something that's, I think, far more revolutionary than just the term Christian. Here in this series, we keep coming back to what the author John Mark, we read it as Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is the second book of the New Testament. He says this at the start of his Gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Mark says that Jesus says, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. One way to sum up the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, everything that comes before Matthew, everything that comes before Jesus, is that the people of God are trying to get God to come close. They're trying to find connection. They're trying to find ways in which they can craft a community, a people where they can experience the fullness, the fullness of the blessing of God. They can experience everything that God has for them. So they create laws and regulations, and, and God gives them ways, ways to distinguish themselves through dietary and what they wear, what they do, when they do this, and when they do that. And it's all about this way, which can we create something? Can we, can we be a set-aside people so that God blesses us? And then Jesus comes and says, that kingdom, that way of living has come close. He doesn't just give us this in or out Christianity where we have to check a box. It's a kind of life where we know God, this kingdom life. It's a kind of life where we experience heaven here and now. Think about those times in your lives where maybe through service, maybe through the restitution of an important relationship. Think about those times when you feel like you have been healed. Addiction, illness, the grief, the shame has been removed. Think about those times, those blissful moments, not bliss in the terms of enjoyment, where things just feel right. I think those are moments where heaven and earth come together. So how do we experience this kind of eternal kind of life in the here and now? Well, Jesus himself says he's the doorway to this, and he issues this incredible invitation. Picking that back up in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16, he says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus offers an invitation. He offers an invitation, and he extends it over and over and over again. It's simply this. It's not to become a Christian. It's not to, to believe a certain thing. It's to follow me. Last year, I was in Israel for a two-week trip with a bunch of other pastors, and we spent about half our time up at the Sea of Galilee, and that's kind of a misnomer. It's more of a lake. It's small. It's a very compact area. You can kind of get around real easily there, and that's essentially where the bulk of Jesus' ministry that we read about in the Gospels occurs. 
And we read about this story about these fishermen, and we can kind of have some assumptions about these, these fishermen, Simon and Peter, and, and these guys end up following, Simon Peter and his brother, and James and John, who end up following him. We can make some assumptions about these fishermen prior to this conversation with Jesus. One of those assumptions is they knew who Jesus was. Jesus had a following. It was a small area. People talked. Jesus was kind of an itinerant. He had to move around and teach. They know who he was. They heard his teachings. And as you can probably imagine, being a fisherman in any point in history, but particularly in the first century, was incredibly hard. It was incredibly hard. It was backbreaking work. There are essentially two seasons in this part of the world. There's a wet season and a dry season. I was there during the dry season and in June. And the highs every day that we were there at the Sea Gallery were over 100 degrees. But thankfully, it was a dry heat, right? So, you, so like the sweat evaporates and you can't like feel your tongue because your mouth is so dried out, right? And it got over 113 one day and it was unbearable. And then they told us about the rainy season, what we would call winter. And they would say that there would be these huge storms. And because it's kind of an a, a, a arid place, there would be these huge flash floods and the wind and everything. like that. It was just incredibly inhospitable if you're on a small exposed boat in the middle of this lake. So imagine that. You're in the middle of this lake. There's no canopy. There's no below deck. There's, you can't get out of the heat. You can't get away from the storms. This is this guy, these guys' lives. These guys knew how to work. Their jobs weren't glamorous. And even though they were able to provide, they weren't becoming rich on this. The best and the brightest weren't becoming fishermen. And Jesus comes along. This rabbi who's building a following and teaching something very different invites them in. Now, Jesus didn't say, believe the right things about me, you'll go to heaven after you die. His invitation was something far more life-changing, far more compelling than just hell avoidance. It was an invitation to experience God's presence and power. The kingdom of God has come near. It's an invitation to become a disciple, an apprentice. See, follow me is an invitation to become an apprentice to Jesus. And remember, the, the word Christian doesn't show up doesn't show up more than three times in the entire new testament but the word disciple shows up 269 times a, a better definition a better identifying marker of the people who follow jesus first would be disciples dallas willard who's kind of this i don't know he's kind of like the gandalf of like church ministry right he's this older guy he's since passed but he has incredible wisdom and, and all this stuff and he writes this in this his famous book divine conspiracy but it, it, it's a it's so much more than that but he says this about discipleship he says a disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is as a disciple of jesus i am with him by choice and by grace learning from him how to live in the kingdom of god i am learning from jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were i now, think about it this way if you are in the you know, you know a trade you're in the building trades you know you have a skill or you're familiar with this you know that there's usually a process you don't just graduate from a school or graduate from a, a training course and you are that thing you're not just graduate as an electrician a plumber what have you there's a process you have to apprentice. You have to learn. And what Jesus is laying out here is this process to learn from Jesus, to be active participants, not just so that we can become smarter or more, more moral or wiser, so that we can become like Jesus. I, I don't know, this is kind of a, in this part of the country, it's kind of a, a, a hit or miss thing, but how many of you are familiar with the card game Euchre? 
You're familiar with euchre. Most of you are. Great. In Indiana, it's a weird kind of thing. Like, it seems like everybody plays euchre where I grew up. But whenever you would teach someone how to play euchre, if you're not familiar, you use about quarter of the deck, nines and hires, and you got weird scorecards and all this stuff, and you got to figure out the, what the, the suit and the color of the card and the jacks have different rules and all this stuff, and you can play euchre and you can get euchred, and it's a whole thing. Every once in a while, someone shoots the moon. It's, it's nuts, right? But as soon as you sit down and try to explain this to somebody, the rules, their eyes kind of glass over. Maybe you've had that experience with other games or other board games. You just want to dive in and say, let's play. Quit telling me the rules, show me. I think in the same way what's going on here with Jesus is, I could tell you what all this is about. I could tell you what this looks like. I could tell stories and stories, which he does. But I want to show you what this looks like. I'm going to show you what it looks like to learn by doing. So what does it mean to say yes to this Jesus invitation? Because it's not just for Simon, his brother Andrew, his friends James and John. It's not just for the other apostles. It's not just for those in the first century who were around and heard this. It's for us. What does it mean? What does it look like for us to say yes to that? Is there some sort of initiation? Is there some sort of right? Is there some sort of activity? There are things that help, but the thing that we have to do to respond in saying yes is we have to change. And we have to change in some hard ways. The first thing that an apprentice must do is release. These Jesus followers, these first apprentices, this, these people who will become disciples, they didn't ask when Jesus invited them, said, hey, can we go store up our nets here and then follow you? They dropped their nets and they followed them at once. They didn't hold back. They didn't have a backup plan. They didn't say, hey, we'll follow Jesus part-time and we'll fish on the weekends or vice versa. They said, we are going after this. Now realize that when Jesus, this respected rabbi, comes to the blue-collar of blue-collar guys, these fishermen, and says, I want you to follow me, they see prestige, they see honor, they see, man, this guy believes in us, and, man, this guy is teaching something different. I know this plays out in my life a lot where I am, fo I am forced to make a decision. God, am I going to trust you? Am I really going to trust you? We have this, I have this moment that plays out where I have to ask myself, I believe up here, right? I believe in Jesus. I know that this is where I want to be, that I want to follow Jesus. I trust the Bible. I believe up here. But do I always believe in here? Do I always believe in my heart? And do I always live that out with my hands? And when it really comes right down to it, do I have faith or do I not? And notice that in these moments, God is not saying, well, you're out. I'm not trusting you. Entangle the things that can snare, the things that can hold you back to the old ways. That this idea of letting go, to truly trust and follow Jesus, it starts by releasing things. Maybe it starts for you with releasing some notions of trying to know what the future looks like. Releasing some notions of security. Releasing some notions of some confidence. The second thing is this. We have to reorient. We have to change we often have to look at things that how we're arranging our lives. What is the focal point of our lives? I, I remember in college, and it was me and four of my best friends, and we had this, this apartment that was designed for maybe four people, and, and we had, had that, that, that apartment just filled up. And in that apartment, there were two bedrooms. Well, life of luxury, right? But instead of actually using two bedrooms for two bedrooms, we put all the beds in one bedroom, we put the desks in the living room, and we turned the second bedroom into a poker room where we could go in there and play cards. We sacrificed 
space for sleeping. We sacrifice space in the kitchen even. We sacrifice space in the living room so we could have a card table in there and a TV and a mini fridge. And, and we had TVs literally in every room of the house. And to answer your question, yes, including the bathroom because that's the idiots and pigs that we were, right? But that was the focal point. That was the focal point. You think about your house right now, you walk in, maybe the TV's the focal point of your house, of your apartment. Maybe you walk in and it's, it's the kitchen or whatever it is, but there's a focal point. And so we reorient things, we follow Jesus, we have to understand that we might need to change some things. In, in Luke chapter 14, the, the, the apostle says this about Jesus. He says that Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, my apprentice, my follower, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your friend and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus trying to break up family? Is Jesus giving me permission to be short with my sister? Regretfully, no. But what Jesus is saying here is that by comparison, we have to put everything at the center that's with Jesus, that's following Jesus. In comparison, everything else is secondary. Because we have a tendency to think we can place God in number two or number three and still get by. And what we put in the first seat is usually a really good thing, like our family, like providing for our family, earning money, like, like having our, our kids succeed in life or, or having success in work and seeing the fruit of our labor come to fruition. Those are good things. But if we're not really putting Jesus at the front, we're not really accepting this invitation. I told you about some of my challenges with trust and faith, and, and one of the ways this looks for me was, was captured so well in this quote, and uh, the author talked about how that a failure to trust, a failure to really believe that Jesus has best, better things for me ahead, that he is really in control, that Jesus is truly at work in my life, and I can trust him. He said that the byproducts of that lack of trust are three things, three things that come when we don't trust, and this is so true in my life. That a trust to follow will, will come with amnesia, where I forget what God has done in the past. Why would I question what God's going to do if I look behind and say, look how God has provided for me? And not because my life has been so perfect or easy, but here I am. So it's amnesia, it's inertia, not doing anything, just stopping and be, kind of being paralyzed, maybe with fear, with indecision, with anxiety. And the third is manana, and just putting it off putting it off, I'll deal with it later. So often when I, when I feel like I need to reorient things, I need to put Jesus at the center, it's because I'm forgetting what God has done. It's because I'm not moving forward in the things I know I should be doing, right? Like there's, there's clear things when we follow Jesus, like we know we should be people who serve, people who love, people who extend forgiveness, people who are generous. We know these things. And we see so often in my life and maybe in yours where I just push those things off. I'm not going to move, and I'm not going to deal with this now. And it's all because of a lack of trust. So we have to release things. We have to reorient ourselves. And the third thing is we have to respond. This is the place we often miss. You come to church. You've been in churches like this before. You're not in agreement, and something happens between that seat and the seat in your car. Or something happens if you're at home when you're sitting here on the couch Lunch is coming up. You got to feed kids. You got other plans for the day. You got to figure out what team is playing today or not because of a COVID test. You got to figure all that out, right? And in the minute, in the moment, you're kind of missing what's going on in the here and now. We have to find a way to respond. I'm coming back to something that Dallas Willard said. He said, "An apprentice is someone whose ultimate goal is to live their life the way Jesus would live 
if he were me. And as as an apprentice, by God's grace, I'm learning to live my life the way Jesus would live it. I'm learning to do my job, to learn to love the people, to deal with the the issues of my life or the issues around me, injustices or things that have gone wrong. I said, what would Jesus do here? How would Jesus interact in this area? In every area of my life, I have to learn, I have to kind of live my way and say, how am I going to respond? Because I shared that graphic at the beginning where it was in and out Christianity, there's a big line. I think more often, in it, 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 what has to happen is it's not in and out Christianity, but do you have the, ne- the next slide there, Jay, where everyone's coming to one center? Do we have that? Yes, thank you. Where we're all coming to that center point. It, it's not about crossing a line. It's about how am I taking steps to follow Jesus? Because you might hear these things of release, reorient, and respond. You think to yourself, I can't do all that, and you'd be right. Our response isn't to have all this figured out. Our response is to take a step. Take a step, even if it's small, even if it's followed up by steps backwards. Are we moving in the right direction? Are we facing the right direction? Are we taking steps moving closer to Jesus? Because all the other things that could divide us, all the other ways we could put up barriers around different issues or different takes on Scripture or theology or God, all of those things pale. All of those things, I believe, will be resolved the closer we move towards Jesus. So if being an apprentice, being a follower of Jesus is like that graphic where we're moving closer. We're moving closer. It's a lifetime pursuit. Moving closer. Here's what I want you to understand today. That Jesus is extending an invitation to you. Here at Movement, we talk about a pathway. So we follow Jesus. How, what is the pathway? We say step one is just to connect. Connect with other people, connect with one aspect of Jesus, start there. Let's see what's going on here. Let's explore together. This is a safe place to ask questions, a safe place to figure things out with others. And then step two is a step of belief. It is to respond. It is saying yes. But so often, implicitly or explicitly, people like me in churches like this stop there. So you say yes, you got your fire insurance, you're good to go, don't worry about anything else. But ultimately, this is where I think things open up. And maybe you came here today and maybe you're tuning in and you're just kind of doing it as a favor to someone you love or a friend. Maybe they promised you lunch and I hope your lunch is great. Or maybe you're here and you're just kind of, your mind's already on the to-do list this afternoon or the week ahead of you. But maybe you're here today to kind of respond, to respond to this invitation from Jesus, to say yes to this, this idea of trusting, this idea of following him. Maybe for others, you realize you've settled for that in and out Christianity. You put lines in the sand and you say, those people are over there. And if we had to ask ourselves, if, if we were going to truly be an apprentice to Jesus, what would change? Coming back to Dallas Willard, he has it's one of his famous quotes that's a real indictment of the church and movement is, is guilty with so many others. Willard says this, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church is not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazingly general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers, is, believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. We are so guilty of this. I am so guilty of this. We just kind of let this slide. We, we struggle to figure out how do we do this? How do we disciple? How do we apprentice other people? How do we follow Jesus? That in the midst where it's so overwhelming, I think we just throw our hands up and we refuse to take steps. We refuse to take steps. And so I think we can all come to this point and say, man, I'm not following Jesus fully. 
I'm not helping my friends, my family, those I love. I'm not helping them find and follow Jesus well. And I think we have to remove the guilt, remove, remove the shoulds, and ask ourselves in this moment, what can we do? How can we respond? There's two things that we do here at Movement. There's two things, two of these acts, two of these kind of rites, these, these actions that have incredible meaning and power. And I want to talk about them as we close. The first is baptism, and the second is communion. Let me talk about baptism first. In baptism, I think that what happens is, is we get to celebrate something that's already happened in our lives. I don't know what your church background is, or maybe you've heard me talk about this before, and so I think wherever you're at, I encourage you to lean in on this. Baptism for me is, is this incredibly important thing, but it's a symbolic thing. That's why baptisms can happen in a pool, in a bathtub, in a horse trough like we do here at Movement that's only used for baptisms. It can happen in, a, in the Ohio River, though I'm not sure that's safe, and I don't know if the Licking River is a better alternative. It can happen all sorts of different places. Baptism is this incredible act that we read that Jesus did, and we read in the scriptures that happened in some form even before that, that, that the Hebrew people practiced these rites of purification. And we see that Jesus comes along and he says, this is going to be something different. This is going to be something new. And you were going to go through this to declare that Jesus is Lord of your life. That you were going to be taken and you were going to be placed under the water in a symbolic fashion to, to identify that you were being buried, that you were dying, and that you come up out of the water alive and clean. It's something that Jesus did. It's something that we see the early church doing throughout the New Testament. So Maybe for you, you've got some questions, and I want to try to answer three of these big questions that might hold you back in these moments. It might hold you back, and just know this, that, that we are going to be celebrating baptisms in November. That second Sunday in November, we're going to be celebrating baptisms. So maybe if you're like, yeah, I'm already in on November 15th, we're going to be doing that here at Movement Church. But let me kind of tackle some of these questions. Maybe the first question for you is, I was baptized already. I was baptized as a baby, as a young child. Should I be baptized again? I know that's a common story for many of us. I know that's a common story in our lives. And you, you think about this, you say, well, what does that say about my parents and what they decided, what they did, my family? Let me say this. When we read about baptism in the New Testament, we find two things that are true of every Christ follower. The person who was baptized was always old enough, essentially, to make a decision for themselves. They always chose this. It was their choice. And we see each baptism as something that was done by immersion, by getting fully dunked completely going under the water. And I would say this, if you were in that spot where you say, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to upset my parents, my grandparents, my family. I understand that. I think baptism is an important thing that you can do for yourself. And I will say this, I honor the decision that your parents made when you were an infant, the decision that that church celebrated. I honor that because what that says is that this church family, this family was bringing a child in and saying, we want this child to be committed to God from the start. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I would come back and say this, getting baptized now as an adult, as, a, as, as someone who's older who can make decisions, you're not saying no to that. You're saying yes, and this is my decision. Yes, thank you for giving me, you know, putting me in front of God in that way. But yes, this is my decision as well. 
The second question is, you might be thinking, like, I want to get baptized, but do I have to do it in front of everyone? You, maybe you've been here at a baptism movement. We do it downstairs with the weather nights. We do it out on the sidewalk, and you think, everyone's going to be looking at me and all that stuff. And I would tell you this. The short answer is no, you don't have to do it in front of everyone. We can, we can do something privately. But the second thing is, is that I think the best thing you could ever do, the best thing you could ever do is to get baptized. And the second best thing you could ever do, I think, is to share that baptism with other people. It's the best sermon you're ever ever going to give. So I would say don't shy away from that. Use it as an opportunity to declare something. The third thing you might be asking, don't I need to have all my life together before I get baptized? No, you don't. Maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was these, these scrolls that, was, that were found in the 50s by this, this little Jewish boy who was a shepherd who was kind of helping, and he was doing what boys do all throughout time, all throughout the world. He was throwing rocks at things. He was out in the desert, and he's throwing rocks, and he throws them into the mouth of a cave, and he hears something shatter on the other end. Here's these clay pots. And they go in, and they find these scrolls and these clay pots, and out of these scrolls are some of the writings of the Old Testament. Some of them are from this other community that was kind of a sect, kind of a, a break-off group about the time of Jesus. And so this Jewish break-off group had taken this idea that they had to be clean, they had to be pure in order to worship, I think to an extreme degree. And they, they dug up and they found this. They found these pits. And around their camp there would be these pits. And there would be these stairs on either side of them. And they realized these were baptism pits. These were purification waters. Because every day, these members of this group would go down in the water and come out. Every day they would get baptized. Every day they would go through this ritual purification. If the standard was that you have to be clean, you have to be right with God in order to be with God. If you have to be right with God in order to be connected to God, for your prayers to be heard, for your compassion to be felt, to feel the compassion from God, to be connected to the Spirit, if all that you need to do was be pure, none of us, no matter how many times we get baptized, would ever achieve this. Baptism is not for those who have it all together. In fact, it's for the opposite. It's for the group of people who say, I don't have it all together. I'm going to screw it up. I'm, I can't save myself, and I need Jesus in my life. So the first way that we can respond to this invitation is through baptism. And the second way is through communion. I'm going to invite the band to come up as they're going to lead us, they're going to help lead us through this. Communion is a, is a way in which we can celebrate. We can take action. We can respond to the invitation. Every week here at Movement, we celebrate communion. We open this up to anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be uh, a part of this church long term or meet some sort of threshold. This is your call. But we say this about communion. We say that the bread and the cup are incredible ways for us to celebrate, to experience again, to remember what Jesus did on the cross. It's a way for us to center ourselves. It's a way for us to say yes to Jesus, say yes to this invitation. The beautiful thing that we see in the New Testament is that every time the church gets together, there's mention of communion. They would do this. This is part of their lives. This is part of their rhythms. And it was there, I think, so that we can remember and we can respond. And so if you've got this little cup, if you're here in the room, you're going to take it with us. Or if you're home, you have, you have things ready. Go ahead and peel back that top. Get your bread out. Get your little wafer out. Hold it up, and we want to take this together. It's an act of solidarity. It's an act of community. And what we're saying with this, 
What we're saying with this is that Jesus' death matters. What we're saying is that when Jesus died, that gift of love was for us. Take and eat. In the same way, I'm going to peel back that next layer for the cup. Jesus pours wine out, maybe just to one cup, and he passed the cup around. And what we see again here is we celebrate the gift. We celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. When you're ready, go ahead and take it. And there's kind of this mantra. There's this phrase that gets repeated over. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the early church writings where they would take communion and they would say something to the effect of whenever we eat and drink, whenever we celebrate these things, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Which is an odd phrasing. How can you proclaim the Lord's death? Death is supposed to be final until he comes back. It's the great paradox, right? That death doesn't get the last word. The last thing, the last thing is not death. There is hope. There is hope that that kingdom is going to fully, fully come. Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you as people who need to accept this invitation. And I would imagine there's people that have thought, hey.